Another rule I have is listen to the customer, but don't listen too much. You'll talk to a lot of people in, in marketing that will say, yeah, we're going to do customer surveys and understand what customers want and then go build that. And what I find there is, you know, the classic example, nobody knew they wanted an iPhone and now everybody has an iPhone. It takes a little understanding of people's traits, the problem, the challenges they have, their desires. But then it takes a little bit of innovative product development um, from the company side to really come up with breakthrough technology. My name's Andrew Smith, the founder and CEO of Outrider. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Andrew Smith set out to create not only sustainable transport, but an autonomous yard vehicle system. All this and more on Code Story. Andrew Smith grew up playing in the woods of northern New England. In sixth grade, he was given a car and driver's magazine and fell in love with Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and Porsches. I mean, who didn't? In seventh grade, his science teacher told him that they got bad fuel economy, so he was inspired to change that. He currently lives in Oregon, though Outrider is based in Colorado, and he's passionate about mountaineering, climbing, skiing, with whom he does with his friends, colleagues, and family any chance he can. He's always thought the largest business opportunity and moral obligation is the commercialization of environmental technologies. Taking a look at the 10 billion tons of freight that is shipped annually in the U.S. alone, his perspective was solidified. This is the creation story of Outrider. Outrider is essentially the first company in the history of the world whose founding mission and sole focus has been the automation of distribution yard operations. So just to take a step back from that, uh, looking at the U.S. market alone, there's over 10 billion tons of freight that's being shipped annually, and the majority of that goes through trucks. Those trucks are in the process of moving that freight or touching distribution centers. So imagine you've got uh, material coming from a factory to a warehouse and then being shuffled around and sent to different uh, supermarkets or stores that's happening in a distribution center. And there's lots of trailers that get dropped off. These, these are big, you know, 53 foot semi trailers that get dropped off at these distribution yards. Everybody's seen these as they drive down the highway on the outskirts of cities. These distribution yards are critical points in the supply chain. Uh, they're also being run today pretty similar to how they were for the last several decades. Trailers get dropped off by over-the-road trucks. They then get shuffled around these yards between dock doors and parking spots, getting unloaded and reloaded by these specialty vehicles called yard trucks that we're focused on automating. And then after the trailers are filled, they get staged for pickup by over-the-road trucks and they take off. The, the challenges and problems that we're solving is in the course of these interactions, you have a lot of congestion at these distribution yards. You have a lot of misplaced trailers that can reduce efficiency and, and uh, inhibit people inside the warehouse getting their hands on the right trailer to unload or, or load. I mean, it's a really dangerous environment. You have 80,000 pound pieces of equipment. You've got people jumping in and out of it 365 days, 24 hours a day. We took a step back and said, for this critical link in the global supply chain, what does the new normal need to look like or should it look like? 
And there was no question that was autonomous and it was an electric, a fully electric zero emission system that would allow people to know what's going on with their assets and monitor the flow and ensure the, the velocity of that flow of assets through these yards. So we deliver dramatic improvements to the efficiency, safety, and sustainability of distribution yard operations. Tell me about the MVP. Tell me about that first product. How long did you take to build it? What sort of tools did you have to introduce uh, and choose to build with? And um, tell me about that process of bringing it to life. Absolutely. Well, that's that's always the the critical piece. And and I should mention uh, this is actually not the first company I've built. So I have a lot of experience in understanding what it takes to get a real product product to market. Uh, this passion for environmental technologies brought me to a number of different sectors, from electric vehicles to energy efficiency to wind energy. But in the mid 2000s, I, I ended up meeting a group of frustrated aerodynamicists who pointed out that the least aerodynamic and therefore least fuel efficient shape to pull down the highway at 60 miles an hour was a big rectangular box. And yet everything we move is in big rectangular boxes. And so we started a company called AT Dynamics, which looked at the low pressure aerodynamic drag behind a semi-trailer and invented a product called a trailer tail that, that streamlines airflow at the back of the trailer and improves fuel economy. To get to a product that really work in this market, what I realized is the MVP is very important, but also understanding that rapid iterations of prototypes is absolutely critical. With that company, we went through essentially, uh, while the original business plan said we'd have an alpha version and a beta version, and then we'd have the commercial product. The reality was we went through 16 iterations before we really got to the durable solution that really worked. Uh, we ended up, by the way, scaling that company to deploying 40,000 of these aerodynamic tails with 500 trucking companies, saved tens of millions of diesel fuel and that company was successfully acquired in 2015. So when I looked at this company, it was all about how do you make the simplest MVP product and how do you have the customers that will work with you to get that deployed? And so that's what we did. We spent a lot of time with customers understanding what that yard of a future looks like and looking at what is the minimum viable components that need to be brought together to do that. What we learned is that you couldn't just automate a truck and throw it in a yard. You had to think of, you really had to deliver three key pieces and, and that's what our minimum viable product consists of, uh, all of which we'll build on over time. The first piece is management software in order that you can simply dispatch autonomous vehicles in the yard to move trailers. The second is the autonomous vehicle itself, and that's an autonomous vehicle that can not only drive autonomously, but that can autonomously connect to and disconnect from trailers in a very congested environment. And then the third piece is what's the minimal site infrastructure that needs to be put in place. And so we put together a team, talked about those key functionality that we had to demonstrate, and as quickly as possible, built that system and started operating it on a narrowly defined section of a single customer's yard. Is this an on-premise solution? Is it cloud-based? Uh, how does that piece of the architecture fit into what you built? So what we call our management software is a cloud-based uh, software that allows you to dispatch the vehicle. So imagine uh, sitting here in Golden, Colorado, I can dispatch a, a vehicle in, in Chicago because it's based in the cloud. Now to be clear, that's not how the system works. We have on-site dispatchers. That's one of the advantages of this use case of automation. We have on-site dispatchers that use this cloud-based system to dispatch the vehicles. Uh, I, what then happens is on the actual vehicles themselves, 
Um, we have sensor and compute hardware so that that vehicle can be making decisions real time based on the environment that it's in about how it moves that trailer from point A to point B. As you're building that first product, you want to you want to bring it to life. Um, I hear you started with a, a kind of a first company's yard to pilot it with and and help you build the solution. But you know, there's a lot of complexities around those three components and how they interact, um, which is super interesting from an engineering standpoint. So, what what early decisions and trade offs did you have to make when bringing that MVP to life? When you think about automation in general. Where are the early use cases of automation going to apply first? And that uh, when we first launched the company in stealth mode, the idea of focusing so narrowly on a distribution yard was sort of less sexy than uh, going after over the road autonomous passenger cars or, or, or autonomous high speed over the road automation. Um, and as, as people sort of recognize the, the safety challenges of those applications, um, it, you know, it, it becomes more and more of a no brainer to start in these distribution yards. So the first thing is to, to really look at a startup from what's a tractable problem that you can provide an exponentially better solution to. Then within the idea of yard operations, there are also a lot of different uh, levels of complexity of the yards you focus on. So like we said, we focused on specific uh, use applications within a yard, limiting down that that problem set even further. Um, so you can imagine in, in literally over 50,000 trucks a day in the United States in these distribution yards are moving trailers just from a set of parking spaces a couple hundred feet to a set of loading docks. So we chose, uh, we worked with these uh, pilot customers. We, we started with one, we now work with um, multiple Fortune 200 companies, but we, we started with those very simple use applications. And then in, in terms of other things we can do to, to simplify the, the MVP, we basically said, hey, our, our management software over time is going to show us vehicle health. It's going to have the ability to um, or, or it has the ability to provide remote operations support, all these things you can do with our cloud-based interface. But to start, you just have to get the very basic in place so you can tell a truck, go from point A to point B. Likewise, on the autonomous vehicle, we knew it had to connect to trailers. We knew it had to move. We chose to move at, at very slow speeds with minimum uh, obstacles and, and, and perception requirements. So you can sort of take each of these subcomponents and strip them down to the bare minimum. And then the final key thing is once you get that MVP to the bare minimum, it's finding the right people that can own those systems and iterate upon them from that MVP to what eventually becomes your, your scaled systems. How did you progress the product after establishing those components, taking down the components to the, to the bare minimum on the MVP? Um, how did you progress the product from there? And, and how did you decide this is the roadmap we're going to build? So one of my big learnings as an entrepreneur is, is you uh, always start with selling. Um, and understand what what are those real pain points that you can solve. And that helps you prioritize how that roadmap looks. Um, another rule I have is listen to the customer, but don't listen too much. Uh, so you'll talk to a lot of people in, in marketing that will say, yeah, we're going to do customer surveys and understand what customers want and then go build that. And what I find there is, you know, the classic example, nobody knew they wanted an iPhone and now everybody has an iPhone. It takes a little understanding of people's traits, the problem, the challenges they have, their desires. Um, but then it takes a little bit of innovative product development um, from the company side to really come up with breakthrough technology. So uh, I think there's a, a, a within our organization, um, as we evolve that MVP, it's all about understanding what our customers want 
um, thinking if we can do things that customers want in, in unique ways um, that make the, the solution even better, and then iterating like crazy. And so, um, I, obviously, we're we're setting up our vehicles so that we can continue to add functionality and capabilities to the vehicle platforms um, as the the company progresses and takes on more and more complex um, applications within these yard environments. So you mentioned, you know, finding the right people to build on that MVP and that could, that could be customers, but that could also be um, a team. So how did you build your team um, and what did you look for in those people to indicate these are the winning horses to have on my team? So that's sort of the biggest question in entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship, I love the definition of entrepreneurship is mobilizing resources you don't control. Not only are you trying to create a great team, but you're trying to convince a great team to jump on board something that doesn't really exist in those very early days. Obviously, because I had uh, past experience, there was some advantage there, but the number one thing is, is reflecting on why would someone want to join you and making sure you can clearly share the opportunity. Not you, you have to do that with customers, with investors, and with the team. So understanding what it is you're building and then being able to really clearly express that is number one for building a team. You have to have that capability in place. But then the second thing from a team standpoint is uh, I did it all wrong in my first company. And the best way to phrase this is in my first company, I spent 10% of my time on team and 90% of my time on everything else. And in starting Outrider, the focus was spend 90% of time on team and 10% of time on everybody else because the people you bring in really are those investments with unlimited return if you get the right people and you get them all working in the same direction. So uh, I've spent a bunch of time uh, pounding the pavement in California and Texas and Colorado before being introduced to some gentlemen who had started a uh, robotics and automation company over 15 years ago called Perceptech that was acquired by Lockheed Martin. And this group had led essentially all the Department of Defense automated vehicle programs over a decade period. Um, when we spoke about this tractable near-term opportunity for autonomous vehicles, they got really excited having seen a, a lot of the real-world safety challenges. And so with a, a bunch of effort, a bunch of network, and, and, and some good pitching and some good luck, um, within about 60 days, we had 12 of the best autonomous vehicle uh, uh, engineers in the world join Outrider and be the foundation upon which to, to expand the team. Let's talk about scalability a little bit. So, you know, in software, and, and I'm, I'm not a robotics guy, but I assume in, in robotics and, and, and to a certain extent, you have to build a solution um, from an MVP standpoint to get it working and to show that it, it can provide value. But there are different approaches to starting with scalability in mind versus uh, doubling back and addressing technical debt um, to to make sure scalability is is a factor in your architecture. So how did you and your team sort of approach that problem? I always um, make this comment to other entrepreneurs with regard to scalability. You can spend a lifetime building one really cool restaurant and, and sort of doing everything and uh, and looking over every detail, or you can spend a lifetime building a chain of a thousand restaurants. It's the same thing. It's one It's one founder building the same thing. And it really depends on where you, you focus your time. And likewise, from a product standpoint, you can spend a lot of time um, working on kind of the coolest prototype ever, or you can spend a lot of time focused on scalability. Our company's mission was to 
uh, rapidly accelerate zero emission vehicle technology into the global supply chain and demonstrate the responsible deployment of autonomy, both from a safety standpoint and working with customers to uh, avoid direct job loss uh, where people can be reallocated. So we have these these key missions. And in order to do that, we had to scale. So we knew from the beginning we weren't building a single prototype. Now, there's always a trade-off because what I like to think of is giving engineers different constraints to drive innovation. So early on, you can say, I just need this system to work. Doesn't matter what the cost is, just go build something that works. And then you sort of brainstorm how you do it with that mindset. Then you said, forget this. We have to be able to do all this and it's got to be less than $10,000. And it puts a different thinking cap on and drives a lot of innovation, innovative thinking up front um, that allows you to uh, kind of not have the constraints of scalability when thinking of new ideas, but then applying the constraints of, of, of scalability. So uh, just final comment on that for what we're doing. There is a lot of cool technology out of there. Out there, We have a, a lot of smart people. There's all sorts of things we'd like to do, but to build a truly scalable system, we have to put that uh, filter on and think not only about the cost effectiveness of our product, but also in our case, um, from day one, we've always thought about how to most easily allow customers to scale these systems across their yard. That's good stuff. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across what you've built with Outrider, what are you most proud of? No question. Uh, the things that really energize me are, are threefold. Um, number one, uh, having the opportunity to work with just an absolutely incredible group of engineers, people that in their domains um, are so incredibly genius um, is uh, is really an honor and, and it's and it's super energizing to be around this group. We had to assemble people that were experts in software, hardware, autonomous vehicles, robotics, logistics, um, and uh, it's a truly unique group of people. So that that's number one. Um, the second thing, which as, as a founder entrepreneur is is uh, just incredibly rewarding, is um, to sit in front of our headquarters where there's now over 100 people working or at, at this point in time, part of that people and a lot of those people are working at home sometimes. Um, but to see vehicles and the team and then uh, flip through the original uh, the original business plan from back in 2017 and, and just sort of uh, being inspired by the fact that um, you can take something from literally an idea and turn it into something real is something that is, is an amazing experience. And then finally, uh, when you walk into our office, um, a couple of the pictures in our lobby are big pictures of uh, scenes from the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which is this absolutely incredible Jurassic Park-like piece of untouched uh, wilderness. It's, it's sort of the last area on the northern coast of Alaska that hasn't been drilled for oil. And it was one of my inspirations to continue work in sustainable transportation. Basically, uh, our efforts and, and demonstration that electric vehicle platforms rather than diesel platforms are the far superior, uh, far superior truck platform, especially when combined with autonomy, means we have an opportunity to drive out 10,000 or sorry, 50,000 diesel yard trucks that are currently sitting there idling in distribution yards, spewing out emissions on a daily basis to accelerate the conversion to electric, reducing carbon emissions, enhancing safety and, and uh, air quality for people working around those vehicles. And from my standpoint, being a big outdoors person, allowing us to preserve more places like the Arctic Refuge that no, do not need to be developed for oil development. 
Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I think one of the the things that has made us uh, very successful, which is finding exceptional people and then giving people a lot of of, of uh, rope and responsibility to go make decisions, um, can also uh, sometimes as a leader uh, make you step back and think everything's running really smoothly. So we very early on as a company, we just made fantastic traction, and you sort of think that that everything's humming along, and you you start you know diverting your attention. As we've grown, which is absolutely the classic thing that happens to every company, um, the one thing I promised to everybody was that you know people's roles will change and the organization will evolve and there will always be new challenges. But I would say once things are starting to work, you can take your eye off them because there's so many things going on as, as a as a as a startup company. You know, th- this is something I swore wouldn't happen and did happen. But one, once we have some traction, you start to get excited, and certainly uh, uh, there were some. Uh, as we, we talked about how important it is to focus on the MVP, there were certainly some projects or customer requests that when everything's going well, you start saying yes to a lot of things. And it puts a lot of tension on teams and people that were able to deliver perfectly all of a sudden get overburdened. And you kind of just expect, hey, it'll all magically work out because it worked the first time. So I think the, the, uh, the thing I would say is a mistake is when you have great traction, you start saying yes to a lot of stuff. And by saying yes to a lot of stuff, you can you can start to uh, really uh, strain an organization. So um, keep keep your eye on the ball, uh, uh, grow fast, but uh, but don't take your eye off that ball. What does the future look like for the product, uh, the Outrider product, and for your team? So uh, obviously, the uh, the w- w- when looking forward, the the best thing is is to to go define it. But um, we as a as an organization uh, are are really unique in that we were cus- custom designed and built as a company to focus on yard automation. And what that required is bringing together the software expertise, the hardware expertise, the the robotics, the logistics, what I mentioned before. And so this team truly has the capability to automate any sort of industrial platforms. Um, it has the ability to do over the road automation. Um, it has the, the ability to do all sorts of specialty robot applications. However, in front of us is this multi-billion dollar opportunity to automate yards and drive more efficient, safer, and um, more sustainable logistics chains for the largest companies that supply everything we eat, wear, and, and, and build with. And so at this point in time, with that whole idea of keeping the eye on the ball, Outrider is very focused on scaling its technology across thousands, of, or I should say, yeah, thousands of distribution yards, tens of thousands of yard trucks, and nailing that in the near term. Let's focus on you for a second, Andrew. Tell me, who influences the way that you work? Tell me about a, a CEO, a architect, a, a, a person, any, any really could be any person. Name a person you look up to and, and tell me why. <laughs> um, well, I will uh, certainly uh, give a shout out to uh, Elon for doing an absolutely exceptional job uh, with Tesla. And uh, I'll, I'll sort of make a comment there. I, I mentioned that in my uh, early childhood days when I was interested in vehicles and, and um, sustainability, um, it certainly crossed my mind to be in the electric sports car space, but Elon's done such a great job with that. It allowed me to go wor- uh, work in trucking. 
So understanding what a new normal can look like and then being tireless in your pursuit of that is a uh, is an exceptional quality. And I, and I think Elon set set the bar for uh, where we should all think about in terms of driving sustainability into everything that we do. I will also uh, give a call out to my wife and children during this process. I had a really uh, funny thing where with my first company, I was giving a present, or I should say with my first company after my first child was born, I was giving a presentation to entrepreneurs where I said, I will never invest in a company where the founder has children because at that period of time, there was no way I could balance everything I was doing or there was no way I could see that I could balance everything I was doing with raising a family at the same time. And what I've learned since then from my three children now ages nine, seven and five and wife is that actually by prioritizing family and, and, and key passions with your business. All it does is drive you to be that much more efficient and focused in how you build the company and that much more focused and, and efficient in uh, empowering your team to build the company with you. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll throw kudos out to uh, Elon and, and a huge thanks to my wife and children for ensuring my priorities were right so that I spent the, the, the right time um, with the company as well as with them. So if you could go back to the beginning, the very beginning, when you were considering this idea or building that early you know, prototype MVP, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? Early on, uh, we did a, a pretty good job stripping things down to, to the essentials. I think uh, the one thing that is always a always critical for a startup, especially an engineering intensive startup, is to think about what you develop yourself versus what you outsource. And there's huge pros and cons to both of those things. But there are a few pieces where when you get really into things, you can start to sort of get stuck in the bunker um, and you're trying to do everything yourself because it's just easier to do that sometimes than to do the the, the market trade studies or, or, or looking what other people do. So I, I would just say, you know, from, from my, you know, advice to myself and other people is do the math, understand, uh, what it is you're trying to build and the value you're trying to create for your customers and, and be creative in how you think about that. Once you're there, uh, don't forget to do the, the, the background research of what's been already done so you don't have to invent things that are already out there. So I think that, that could have saved us a, a little bit of time in, in our early days if we had just had a, a little more person time allocated to making sure we, 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 we never reinvented the wheel as we built the system. You're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're, they're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They really think it's going to make a difference. You know, having done this a few times and, and showing your success with Outrider, what advice would you give that person having you know, been down this road a bit? It's going to take way longer than you think to bring your idea into fruition. Make sure what you're doing is not just something that makes money, but is something that that you're really passionate about. And my term for this is rocking chair goals. When I started my first company, you know, the business plan was, you know, year one, you do the prototype, year two, you launch the commercial product, year three, it's, you know, you're, you're off to the races and, and you sell your company and you're famous and all that. It really was a nine and a half year process. If you aren't working on something that you're truly passionate about, you won't have the persistence and, and grit and get your hands dirty, fix it at all, no, at, at any cost mentality than if you're just out there because you think you have a cool idea that people might pay for. 
So that, that's what I'd look at someone in the eyes to, to, uh, to, to tell them is it, it's the most invigorating uh, experience uh, from a professional standpoint that I can think of, of, of taking something from, uh, from, from nothing to, to something. Uh, so I can't recommend it a month enough, but make sure it's something you're proud of. And when you're sitting in a uh, rocking chair in your old age, uh, drooling out of the corner of your mouth, reflecting on your life, you can be really proud of, of all the years you spent doing it. Absolutely fantastic advice. Landry, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the product creation story of Outrider. Noah, thanks so much. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.